The sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 to 25. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refused to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even to his heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, who are we, O Lord, that you speak to us, that you care for us, and that you're mindful of us? Father, we thank you that you accept our worship and it is pleasing to you. And we thank you for the word that you've given us to guide us in our lives, Lord. I pray, Father, that you can send your Holy Spirit here today. And he may write your laws in our hearts, Lord. And help us appreciate the beauty of your word. May your name be glorified here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today... We will be continuing on our series on the life of Moses, and we'll be moving into a new episode in the book of Exodus. So prior to this, in the book of Exodus, we've been talking about how Israel were in slavery, and how they were under an oppressive pharaoh in Egypt, and God was calling Moses to freedom. Now... We're moving towards a new section where we'll begin to look at the events that led to Israel finally being free. There are two events that's talked about in today's text. Um, 
the Aaron staff turning into a snake, and two, the waters of the Nile turning into blood. The first event is a preview of what God is about to do to Egypt, and the second event is, a series, is, is the first in a series of plagues that will come upon Egypt. And from these events, we can at least see three things that are happening. One, God declares war on his enemies. Two, the enemy will fight back by copying God. And three, God wins. So let's see how this happens. And we're going to be referring to a bunch of places in the Bible in this text. So please bear with me. And God willing, by the end of the sermon, we might see how immensely deep this text is. So, when God had sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh before, in Exodus chapter 5, but Pharaoh refused him. Now, God is sending Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh, and, and this time he's not asking politely like last time. This time God is going to show Pharaoh that he's not messing around. So God knows that Pharaoh is going to ask God to, to, to perform a miracle, to challenge God to prove himself, to see if he's legit. And God shows Pharaoh these miracles not to impress or convince him. In fact, God already knows in verse 13 and 22 that Pharaoh is going to harden his heart after seeing these miracles. So what's God doing? God is trying to send Pharaoh a message. The message is that he is now at war with the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the king of creation. Let's see how he does this. In the first wonder, when God shows Pharaoh Aaron throwing a staff and it turning into a serpent, it has some further significance, right? So the snake is actually a symbol of power in Egypt. And if you've seen, um, you know, graves of pharaohs in the Discovery Channel or something, you would see that on their crowns, they have snakes. And also, apparently, that throwing a staff in front of a king would be what another king would do to declare opposition or enmity towards another king. So what God is showing Pharaoh through Aaron here, is that it was he who raised Pharaoh up. Like he says in Exodus 9 verse 6, that it was God who raised Pharaoh up. Just how he can turn a worthless stick into a living snake. The only reason why Pharaoh has power is because God gave it to him. God is Pharaoh's Lord. God is the, king, is the God of Egypt, not Pharaoh. And in the second wonder, this happened again, when the, when, the, when the rivers of the Nile was turned into blood. So when Moses meets Pharaoh, it says, in the morning in the banks of the Nile, it was probably when Pharaoh was in an act of worship. Now, the Nile River is very important to the Egyptians. And because of its importance, it's worshipped by the Egyptians as a deity. It was not only the source of their water and fish, but also of their irrigation system so that they can grow crops. It was a main highway of transport for them to take uh, goods and people. It was the source 
of Egypt's wealth and power, right? And it is also the source of Pharaoh's wealth and power. So what is God saying to Pharaoh when he turned the waters of the Nile into blood? That the God that you worship, the thing that you depend on for food, income, power, the place where that you've abused and you've drowned the sons of my people, it's not yours to control. It's mine. I own it. It is my servant. Through these two events, God has declared to Pharaoh his sovereignty over himself and the land. God is the Lord of Egypt. God is the Lord of Pharaoh. So God was dishing out some disrespect here to Pharaoh. It's like going in front of the president of a country and then burning the flag. This is treason. What God showed Pharaoh was nothing less than a declaration of war. Now, fun fact, these uh, events that the snake turning into, I mean, the staff turning into a snake, happened before in Exodus 4. And it's mentioned again later in Exodus uh, 7 verse 17, right? But the word that is used for snake here in verse 8 to 12 is different from the word that's used for snake in the other um, times it's mentioned. In the other times it's mentioned, the more generic term for snake, nahash, is used. But here in verse 8 12, the word tanin is used. This is interesting because tanin does not just translate into a simple snake. It's what in Genesis 121 is trans translated as a sea monster. In Jeremiah 51.34, it's translated as a monster. In Ezekiel 29, God calls Pharaoh a tanin, and there it's translated as dragon. And it is also the Hebrew root for the word that would be translated as dragon in the New Testament, in Revelations 12. So it's not like in this instance of the miracle, the staff turned into a monster instead of a snake. But there is a very intentional switching of terms here. That God is essentially calling Pharaoh Satan. The great enemy, the dragon that will try to develop the child who is to rule all nations. Who the angels of the Lord will be fighting. What I'm trying to say is that this description in Exodus of some events that happened thousands of years ago is an earthly type that points to a higher spiritual reality. It points to a battle that's going on now. The declaration of war against Pharaoh speaks about God's war against Satan. Right? Declaration of war that was declared not long after creation in Genesis 3.15 when God says, I have set Emri between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. And this is a war that will continue until the end of time, until God will finally cast the dragon and his servants into the lake of fire. This is what Paul means in Ephesians 6.12 when he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of, of evil, right? We are in a war against Satan and his servants. And why is this war fought? What is fought over us? Look at verse 16. God wants his people to be free because he wants us to serve him. Not Pharaoh. 
As we've seen in the previous chapters, like Satan, what Pharaoh tries to do is he tries to manipulate and abuse God's people to build his own kingdom. And Satan does that too. And later in Exodus, we will see what does God want for his people? God wants his people to be holy, to be clean, so his presence can be with them. So he can give us a peace that surpasses understanding. So he can give us eternal life through his son. So we cannot run from this war. This war will come to us. And we need to choose which side that we're on. So, since we're in the middle of this war, this is point two. And to survive it, we need to know which side is winning, first of all. But we also need to know how the enemy attacks. What Pharaoh does after God shows him these miraculous signs is that Pharaoh tries to go and copy God. Right? God calls his servants to do a miracle. Then Pharaoh calls his own servants to do the same miracle. But they do like a Kawe Mangadua off-brand version of this miracle. First of all, God's snake is better than Pharaoh's snake. And the second time they did it, it was kind of pointless, right? Because if the magicians were really as powerful as God, they would have turned the water back from blood. But they turned more water into blood, helping nobody but Pharaoh's ego. And what is the heart behind Pharaoh's actions? What's Pharaoh's problem, really? His words in Exodus 5 verse 2 reveals it most clearly. Who is the Lord, he says, that I have to listen to him? I don't know the Lord. See, the problem is Pharaoh is considered to be a god in Egypt. He is the god of Egypt. He is the highest authority of the land. He is the boss. It is his house. Nobody gets to tell him what to do. And this is the exact same thing that Adam and Eve were tempted by, by Satan in the garden. Satan convinced Adam and Eve that they didn't need God to tell them what to do. He's not trustworthy. You can eat the fruit. You can be just like God when you eat the fruit. And you can decide for yourself what is good. Friends, this is at the heart of unbelief. A refusal to acknowledge God's authority and an attempt to be God ourselves. So when I talk to people and I tell them, you know, like, I go to theology school and I work for a church. One of the favorite things that non-believing people tell me is, oh, I'm not religious. I don't believe in God. So I ask them probably what is the last question that they want to answer. Why not? Why don't you believe? Why don't you worship a God? And in some way or another, right, they end up telling me that they don't need God. That whatever benefits that they can get from worshiping a God, they can get themselves. That in the world out there, there is enough to satisfy us. And if they work hard enough to get it, they'll be happy. So because they have enough money at this point, they have the right relationships, the right reputation, the right lifestyle, they're fine. They don't need God. And a friend of mine put it another way. That God is basically like an adult's imaginary friend. That God is basically for weak people to deal 
with the ultimate hopelessness of our lives, to deal with the fact that our lives are ultimately meaningless. So if something bad happens to you, you can say, oh, it's God's will. And you can hope that it gets better because you somehow believe that God cares. So the real answer, what you should do, is you should depend on yourself for happiness. Stop looking to anyone else and work for what makes you happy. You do you. God's not going to reward you or stop you from doing anything. It's all about your happiness. And just like Pharaoh's magicians were able to reproduce something that cosmetically looks like what God can do, likewise, Satan can offer us the things of the world and make them seem just as good as God. Isn't this what happened when Jesus was tempted in the desert? The devil offered him the world if he came to bow and serve him. And the things of the world, they might satisfy you for a time. But first of all, when Satan successfully deceives you like this, you're going to spend the rest of your time trying to get or maintain whatever it is you think fulfills you and makes you satisfied. And you can only count on yourself for this because remember, you are responsible for this. Nobody else can help you. Then, either like what's going to happen to Pharaoh, some tragedy that's beyond our control happens, right? Like the economy crashes and we lose our job and our business. We go bankrupt. And the relationship that we depend on betrays us and, or leaves us. And something happens and you mess up and your reputation is ruined. What you work, work so hard for, you lost. Then our worlds will far, fall apart. Or you might somewhat succeed in keeping what you think makes you happy and getting them. And your hearts will remain hardened until the end of your days. And if God does exist, you will meet your maker and you will have to take responsibility for what you've done. So this is how the devil manipulates us into serving him. By con convincing us the Lord is not our God. We are. Right? We might think that demonic attacks are mainly more dramatic things like hauntings or possessions or curses. But it's most often more subtle. When does Satan possess you or own you? It is when you declare your independence from God and you join Satan's rebel kingdom. Because the enemy of Satan's enemy is his friend. Jesus says, whoever isn't with me is against me. Matthew 12, 30. So we've got to admit, though, that God's lordship is something that's really hard to accept. It's nicer to believe that God is our Father and our friend who loves us no matter what. But if God is our Lord, we might have to give up the things that we enjoy or, or even things that give us purpose in our lives. And we don't get to control what happens to ourselves anymore. It's scary. So it, hap so it seems safer for us not to depend on anyone else and just do what's right on our own eyes. At least I know I made the right decision at the time. Also, if it works out, I can take all the credit. So interestingly, these two um, miracles, right? The snake and the 
and the blood water are two of the three signs that God tells Moses to show Israel to convince them that God was the one who showed Moses. And what happened in Exodus 4.30 when, God show, when Moses shows them the signs? They believed and worshipped. Contrast this to what Pharaoh did when he saw God's, God's power. He disbelieved, and in fact, he tried to convince himself and everyone around him that he's just as powerful, and he hardened his heart. Now, what does the Bible say is the greatest show of God's power? First, First Corinthians 1.18, I think, says it best. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So this is the power of God. That Jesus Christ, God, died for your sins on the cross. And on the third day, he rose again. Do you believe that this actually happened in history? Or do you think, is it some myth that we Christians invented to make ourselves feel better? Because if so, we are some sad, sad fools. And what we're doing here is basically pointless. But if you believe, the gospel has the power to set you free. Only when we believe in the gospel and more about the cross can we be willingly to give God control over our lives. Can it seem safe for us to give God control over our lives and we, so that we can submit to him? That we can worship him as Lord. Otherwise, we'll be deceived. Our hearts will be hardened. So believe. The third point. So although the battles are ongoing, this was never a fair fight. Pharaoh never stood a chance against the creator of the universe. So when God shows Pharaoh his power, Pharaoh responds by showing God his own power, right? He calls his magicians to do the same miracle. But then in verse 12, it says that Aaron's staff swallowed the staff of Pharaoh's servants. Now, this word, swallow, it only happens one more time in the book of Exodus, which is when the Red Sea swallows Pharaoh's armies. And this verb, to swallow, in the Bible, does not simply indicate eating most of the time. It also indicates complete and utter destruction or defeat of something. For example, like in Hosea, when Israel sinned, God said that the nations will swallow up Israel, right? It doesn't mean that the nations are going to cannibalize Israel, but that they're going to defeat Israel. So what God is doing here is, is he's telling Pharaoh what he is about to do to him. God didn't only declare war. God declared his victory. He called game. And what is happening here, just as God's declaration of war against Pharaoh isn't simply pointing to events that happened thousands of years ago, God's declaration of victory here also points to God's ultimate victory over Satan, over his enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 says that on the last day, when God's people are raised to life through Jesus Christ, death will be swallowed up in victory. And death here is not only talking about the physical death of the body, but an ultimate separation from God, the giver of life. 
it is the worthy and fitting punishment for our sin. Hell. Fact is, just like Pharaoh, all of us once had hearts that are hardened to God. Although God is our creator and he has given us his law, we don't want to obey him. We want to do what we want to do. Although God is the one who gives us life and is the source of every good thing that we have, ultimately, we do not give him the love and worship he deserves. But instead, we love and worship ourselves. Or we love and worship the gifts instead of the giver. See, sin is not only a category of action, right? Or like a type of thing that you do. It is a condition, a disease of the heart, a disease that makes us naturally hate God and harden our hearts to Him. It's like an allergy that we get towards God. And it is one that we all have since birth. Romans 3 says, No one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death. But you you might think at this point, death is a bit harsh, isn't it? Because I didn't do anything that bad. I don't don't deserve to die, do I? The thing is, God did not set this punishment, punishment to be strict or unreasonable. God is holy and just. And because God is holy, anything that is unholy will be destroyed in His presence. So what to us might be the smallest sin causes us to be unholy and therefore completely unworthy of God, right? It's like, you know, in zombie movies, like The Walking Dead, if you get bit, it doesn't matter if you get bit on your neck or on your finger, you're going to turn. And once you turn, we're going to have to put you down. Why? Because you're going to try to eat us, right? The same thing with sin. It makes us opposed to God and unable to be in the presence of God. So death is simply the natural result of being expelled from God's presence. So how does God swallow death? In Hebrews 2 verse 14 tells us that death is the power of the devil through which he makes us his slaves. And God defeated him by taking on flesh and blood and experiencing death on the cross. Jesus went down from heaven and took the punishment that was meant for us. Death, hell, hell had our name on it. We were supposed to be there, but Jesus took the punishment for himself so that hell and death no longer has claim over us. And because Jesus was raised on the third day, we will also be raised with him on the last day. So because Jesus has died for us on the cross, we don't need to fear death. Even if we die physically, we won't go and see a judgmental enemy we will return to the homes of our Heavenly Father. We don't need to be fighting God through Christ while we were still His enemies. He died for us. We don't need to hide from Him. We don't need to run away from Him. We can come to Him and find grace and mercy. We don't need to fight God. Jesus Christ, the power of God, has swallowed death the power of sin. See the image that, that Exodus is giving us? So we have two options. One, either we believe in Christ, God's power, and we worship Him, and we, cu- and we turn from God's enemies into God's sons and daughters. 
or we harden our hearts in rebellion and declare our independence from God. Choose this day whom you will serve. It's for me and my house. And I sincerely pray for you. I will serve the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Father, that you have opened our eyes and that you've allowed us to see your beauty. We thank you, Lord, that you have died for us and freed us from the tyranny of sin. I pray, Father, that we can embrace this victory that we have, that you can continue to give us grace to fight off the fiery darts of the enemy and to stave off temptation, that we may only acknowledge you as our king and that you alone is the one that we serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.